Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What a joy it has been through surveillance of sporting to speak to any number of women who have been out front with academic courage and uh, professionalism within the industry, including Julia Coronado with us earlier. And now for the entire hour, thrilled to bring you Abby Joseph Cohen, who's had a wonderful commitment to my work at Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance, and that she would commit an hour to us this morning is greatly appreciated. Abby, um, you are the permable, but the pros who know you know you're not. And you have shifted over the last number of months. Why have you shifted from a real optimism on the stock market and on making money over the long term to something that is more cautious? What brought about that shift? Thank you very much for including me in your programming today. I'm flattered uh, to be given this much time. In response to your question, I'm going to quote Lord Maynard Keynes, who, when asked why he had changed his forecast, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? And as I take a look at things right now, um, we have this very mixed picture. It's almost bipolar uh, in terms of one extreme versus the other. On the one hand, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy look solid. The economy is growing well. GDP is rising. The unemployment rate is moving lower. Corporate profits moving up. All of that looks great. And this is against a backdrop in which inflation and interest rates are rising only in a very modest way. But what are the concerns? I'll start with valuation. You know, if something good is already priced in, where are the surprises likely to come from? And I would say that what is priced into bonds right now is that inflation um, will stay extremely quiescent and that demand for U.S. bonds will stay extremely robust. And I think, if anything, we are making as a marketplace, um, we're a little too complacent about that. I think rates are rising. And I am concerned that demand for Treasury securities, particularly among non American investors uh, may in fact be uh, declining somewhat. The second thing I would point to is the following. We are all creatures of our arithmetic. We run the valuation models. We have numbers for earnings, numbers for GDP, numbers for job gains. What we have a harder time building into our models are some of the other things, the other factors. And right now, I think we're looking at notable changes in government policy. And some of these are not for the better. You know, just a few moments ago, Mario Draghi, when he was asked about the European outlook, which is improving, growth is accelerating there. When asked what he was concerned about, he said the number one risk was trade protectionism in the world. And I am concerned about that, particularly since the United States uh, seems to have thrown down the gauntlet and thrown down the gauntlet in a 
in an ill-considered manner. So that, to me, is a risk. I also think there are risks in, term, uh, in terms of some of the other policies that have already been implemented. Uh, there, I think there were errors made, for example, in the tax policy, but there are also errors in terms of the things we're not doing. And we could spend a whole hour on this, but basically, long-term growth of any economy is tied yeah. arithmetically to two things. Number one, how many workers do you have? And is there growth in that labor force? And secondly, how productive are each of those workers, the labor productivity? And when I take a look at policy initiatives that, for example, number one, may reduce the pace of growth in our workforce because of the changes in immigration, that is concerning. And number two, when we take a look at are we investing sufficiently in the future to bolster the productivity of all of our workers? Um, it's not looking as propitious as it normally does in the United mm -hmm. States. There have been cutbacks, for example, in uh, government funding for research and R&D. And it's still early innings here, I know. But when we take a look at what corporations are doing with their prodigious cash positions and cash that will be increasing because of the reduction in the corporate tax rate, so far, the number one use of those funds right. seems to be share repurchase rather than doing things no. like raising wages or, in terms of long-term investment, putting it back into the company yeah. in the form of CapEx. Let's get Pim Fox I, to jump I, in Abby here. Joseph Cohen, yeah. I just want you to comment on when you went to Cornell, I believe that uh, it was one of the few Ivy League schools that admitted women into the into the study of economics and, and science. And uh, I'm wondering if that has changed to such an extent that the way we view markets and investing has changed. I'm wondering if you could just give us your thoughts on that, uh, that historical change. Well, you know, th that's a great question um, and takes us back many years. The answer is yes. When Cornell was founded in 1865 as the land-grant college um, for New York State, it accepted women immediately. But it was harder for women to be accepted than for men for a whole variety of reasons. That has now changed. If we take a look at Cornell or any number of other schools, we now see greater balance in things like engineering, uh, applied science. Um, and in the medical college at Cornell, uh, more than half of our females, half of our students are women. So yes, there has been an enormous change over this one generation. And I would say uh, good news, not just for the women, but also uh, for our population. Uh, good news for our country overall. Well, let's come back. Abby Joseph Cohen with us here uh, for the hour. A lot of things. We'll do central banking here next with uh, huge changes at the Fed. And, of course, Mr. Draghi with some terse statements today on multilateral and unilateral trade uh, dynamics uh, as well. Abby, we have a new vice chairman, Richard Clarida who, well, at least we believe he will be appointed, I guess that's where we are in the mix, who will be a monetary economist to assist Jay Powell. Explain to our audience how someone of the academic abilities of Richard Clarida dovetails with a Wall Street veteran like Jerome Powell. How does that work? Well, I think it's a wonderful question, Tom, and really raises a broader issue, and that is the members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve are supposed to be diverse 
in their backgrounds. And when the Fed was originally put together, the idea was diverse in their business backgrounds and also their regional backgrounds, which is why you have the various regional banks uh, around the Federal Reserve System. For the Board of Governors itself, I think it's critical to have people with business experience, banking experience, but also the academic economic experience. We saw just how valuable that was under the last two uh, Fed chairmen. Uh, So, for example, uh, Ben Bernanke, his academic expertise was in the Great Depression of the 1930s. And so when the financial crisis hit here um, and around the world in 2008, 2009, there was probably nobody better informed than Mr. Bernanke to think about what could be done going forward. And similarly, uh, when Janet Yellen uh, was chair of the Board of Governors, her expertise was in labor markets. And if you think about where the stresses and strains have been in our economy, it has been with regard to the workforce facing both cyclical and structural issues. These have been her areas of expertise. So I think it's very uh, appropriate to have somebody with academic expertise come onto the Board of Governors whether if it's not going to be the chairperson, at least there is that strength there. And let's not forget the very capable staff uh, that supports the Board of Governors in Washington. Abby Joseph Cohen, what kind of guidance or perspective can you offer individuals, whether they be professional investors or people that are concerned about their retirement, paying for health care, caring for members of their family, or even, I dare say it, paying for tuition? Uh, what can you offer them in terms of a new Federal Reserve governor? What is important for them to understand that would affect the way that they plan for their financial future? Well, there are so many different elements that one needs to take into consideration. And let me begin with one group that you mentioned, and that would be individual investors. I think that many individuals really should begin with a financial plan. Uh, You know, I've spent my career working primarily with institutional investors, but individual investors need to take into consideration many of the factors to which you just alluded. So, for example, what are their long-term goals with regard to education? for their children, their own retirement, but also what is their tax situation uh, and are they saving appropriately? I think as a nation, we are facing some problems in that we are finding that many families are not saving adequately uh, and we really need to start there. So before we even get to the individual investment decisions, let's make sure that uh, households are saving enough of their current income to plan for their future needs. Okay. So in that context, if you went around Goldman Sachs or any uh, big institution and you asked people to raise their hands to say how many people have six months worth of what it takes for them to live in cash, do you think you get a lot of hands raised? Well, I'll give you an example from Goldman Sachs because you specifically asked about it. We do, in fact, provide access to financial planning advice. So you would think uh, that so many people who are involved in the investment business would not need or want that kind of assistance. In fact, they do. Um, Because even in a firm like ours, more than a third of our employees are in technology. They're not really investment people per se. And we give people uh, access to others who can help them on these issues about how much they should be saving, what the tax issues are in terms of long-term saving, and preparing for these long-term goals. I don't think there is anyone exempt from needing this sort of assistance and help. Abby, within 
<clears throat> where we are right now and within the central banks. Well, let's do this. Let's come back and do this right. We're, we're thrilled to have Abby Joseph Cohen uh, for a lengthy time. And instead of cutting her off here as we uh, move to the market openings, let's do this right and come back with Abby Joseph Cohen on uh, central banking. And I, I really want to talk to her also about the state of her global uh, Wall Street as well. Ms. Joseph Cohen is with Goldman Sachs. What a joy. Abby Joseph Cohen uh, with us. We've been talking about the equity markets, a little bit on central banks and some of the dynamics that we saw from Mr. Draghi. Abby, Pim and I would like to talk to you about the evolution we've seen. You've been hugely active within the CFA Institute uh, program, writing trenchant uh, financial articles with some heavy-duty mathematics uh, to it. I would suggest unlike the gloom in this country about a brain drain or a dumbness, the industry gets smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter. How much smarter are we now than when I did the CFA or you did the CFA? Uh, Tom, I think that as a profession, we have gotten smarter because we have better tools. Um, and I think that the average uh, professional investor is now much more quant savvy, knows where the data are, knows how to use it, and so on. And one of the things I am concerned about as we look intermediate to long term is that we become too complacent because yeah. we become so focused on those models. And what we have to ask ourselves, are the models, to use the statistician, expression, are the models properly specified? That is, are the equations correct? Are there other factors out there that we're not yet taking into consideration? I mean, I, I look at this Pim Fox, and can you imagine Ms. Joseph Cohen at Goldman Sachs? She shows up the first day. Well, tell us about it. Uh, Abby Joseph Cohen, what was it like uh, walking in the door at Goldman Sachs when you first arrived there? Um, it was a delight um, because, quite frankly, I had been recruited uh, to Goldman. Uh, they knew what they were getting, and that's what they wanted. Um, they wanted somebody who had background in quantitative analysis and also economics. And this was fairly new because, at that point, portfolio strategy was often done by, pardon me for saying this, um, a mature gentleman, um, not at Goldman, but at other places, uh, sitting back, smoking a pipe. Uh, 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 perhaps pontificating about markets and the Goldman wait, approach. Wait, excuse was, me. You're, you're describing Bloomberg surveillance, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> so continue. But, that was a softball. Go for it. Continue. Yeah, so, so what we basically have um, at Goldman is this focus on let's really do the homework. Let's dig into the data on economics, on corporate performance, work the valuation models, and use that as a critical portion of our theme uh, and our conclusions. And we always start with that as the base, uh, be it fixed income or equities, U.S. or non-U.S. markets. And then I think the art form uh, that's involved here is to say, what are we missing? Uh, what's not included uh, in those models. And uh, one of the things that we are focused on right now are policy switches of uh, somewhat inconsistent nature that are occurring right now. Um, lots what of would be the on largest one that, that, that you think people are not paying attention to? What would you tell them to focus on? 
Well, there are two uh, right now. One is the tax cut. The short-term aspects of the shortcut are favorable. Uh, we see that corporate profits and cash flow are moving up and so on. But long-term, what that tax cut has done has basically been to take away a lot of the seed corn that would normally be used for future investment. And that's of concern in terms of what this means for longer-term economic growth. What does it mean in terms of increasing the deficit, interest rates, treasury borrowing, and so on? The second one, which of course is still up in the air uh, because uh, the president's statements are changing uh, literally from hour to hour, is what are we doing with regard to trade policy? Uh, Mario Draghi, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, many others just over the last 24 hours have said that they believe that this movement towards potential movement towards protectionism would endanger global economic growth. The United States would not win a trade war. Nobody wins a trade war. Uh, it basically is not a zero-sum sort of thing. Uh, protectionism and trade uh, friction uh, basically reduces economic activity globally, as was seen in the 1930s. Uh, so I think that that is the single biggest concern I would have. You know, I take a look at the analysis that's being done uh, because we have to do something in terms of working numbers to see, you know, on the margin, which industries would be helped, which countries might be helped, and so on. That's only part of the picture. That okay, but, but let's say, can you just give us... to global GDP? Can you give us worst-case scenario for someone or an institution that is using an exchange-traded fund that invests, say, in the S&P 500? Worst-case scenario for... Let's go backwards. Uh, start with trade policy and tax cuts. What happens to that uh, S&P 500 portfolio? Um, the valuation work that we do, which assumes a modest rise in interest rates and inflation, assumes that the fair value for the S&P 500 is roughly 2850. So that's the level which is supported by the strong underlying fundamentals right now uh, in the United States. Um, what we did see when there was the first beginning of talk about trade problems and so on is that we backed off from that 2850 level, which is where we were a few weeks ago, and normally Normally, uh, volatility is typically within the 10% range. I'm not making a forecast. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. historically, that's what it's been. But the other thing to look at is risks, potential risks to the upside, potential risks to the downside. Uh, potential risks to the upside, could the economy be much better and corporate performance much better than what's already priced in? Perhaps, but it's not a high probability event. Could there be these unpleasant policy surprises um, to the downside? Yes, and my personal view is we're more skewed to the downside at this point than the upside. Well, within that caution, skewed to the downside, does Abby Joseph Cohen believe cash is an asset? When we um, advise institutional clients, which again is my primary uh, conversation level, uh, we are saying, you know, take a look at a little bit of uh, cash, uh, a little bit of dry powder. Uh, because if we have a situation where volatility in the markets just returns to normal, uh, there could be some interesting opportunities to get back into assets which are long-term agreeable, um, but at lower prices. So the answer is, yes, a little bit of cash on the sideline, not a bad idea. And our biggest concern, Tom, with regard to valuation is not equities. It's really fixed income. Uh, interest rates uh, in the United States are likely mm -hmm. to rise. We 
don't think very much. On the other hand, inflation, we believe, has bottomed in the United States. The Fed is likely to raise short-term rates four times, and we are concerned about... The demand from foreign investors, you know, at this point, they have typically owned well more than 40% of U.S. Treasuries. If the dollar uh, becomes something that is not needed as much uh, because it's no longer as important right. uh, in, in trade, <clears throat> that's an issue. Okay. Me- With the savvy Joseph Cohen of uh, Goldman Sachs, a generous hour, and that's allowed us to go deeper here than we usually uh, do. Abby, I interrupted you so rudely there as we went to break, and um, we were talking about if we get a weak dollar, what are those ramifications? If we get, you know, I guess with some higher inflation and some dynamics of fiscal policy, the surprise of a weak dollar, what will that mean for investors? That is a whole big um, area of discussion, Tom, because there are also the technical aspects of supply and demand for U.S. Treasuries. Um, Not that long ago, foreign investors owned about 44% of the U.S. Treasury market. They're down to 39%. Now, some of that was a portfolio decision. Some of the money has gone into higher-yielding corporate bonds. But we have to keep in mind the following technical aspect. Not all trade uh, involving dollars involves the United States. Okay, so for example, in Asia, uh, more than half the trade is actually denominated in dollars, even though dramatically less than that, maybe 10 or 15 percent involves the United States. And over the last few years, we've seen that the Chinese have moved aggressively to try to denominate trade contracts in renminbi rather than dollars. And if that happens, there's less foreign demand for U.S. Treasuries. Uh, Consider, for example, that uh, decomposition of who does China really trade with. Uh, What we see is that about 50% of Chinese exports go to the nations of the new Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is the trading bloc that the Trump administration pulled us out of as one of the very first policy mm-hmm. actions when they came into office. So 50% of uh, Chinese exports go to TPP, and 60% of Chinese imports come from those TPP nations. Almost all of that is now denominated in dollars. It's very possible with the U.S. not being part of that trade pact, we're going to see less demand for the dollar as that denominating currency in foreign trade. And of course, if our policy becomes increasingly uncertain in the eyes of others around the world, the dollar loses some of its aura as a safe haven. Uh, Our belief uh, at Goldman Sachs is that the decline in the dollar, which began in the autumn of 2016, will continue. Well, that's an interesting uh, call. Pim? Well, I I just want to get your thoughts on a comment that was made by Daniel Pinto. Uh, He is uh, the J.P. Morgan Chase executive, and he warned that equity markets could fall as much as 40 percent in the next two to three years. He said 20 to 40 percent, and the media picked up on 40 percent, but it was at band to drop. 20 to 40. Well, okay, let's say 20 to 40 percent. That's still a big big gap. Uh, Could this, do you believe that this deep correction could happen? Um, I've had the opportunity to look at least at the Bloomberg coverage of his statement, and he said something ahead of that 
possible correction, and that is markets look good uh, for the next year or two. Um, so that intermediate to long-term forecast is something that I suspect everyone would uh, want to see, well, how do the, the facts on the ground actually develop in, in the meantime, and what will the valuation look like? Um, if we look at the valuation right now, um, I would say that equities are pricing in a realistic, positive scenario. Um, and that's why uh, our teams think that 2850 is fair value for the S&P 500 this year. Um, it is the credit markets uh, that look overvalued. Um, and that is something that we probably need to be focused on sooner but, than that two <clears throat> to three year horizon. And, and let me go yeah. back to a point, Pim, that you raised earlier. And that is what about individual investors? Um, we have seen over the last 10 years that individual investors, particularly those who've lost their defined benefit pension programs, and have gone into defined contribution and are now running more and more of their own retirement money, they have skewed much more towards fixed income yeah. than equity. And I think that there is a <clears throat> false sense of security that these but, are safe investments. Uh, if interest rates go up, the value of those assets will go down. But, Abby, a cardinal rule here that's so important to Pim's comments is you can't invest unless you're steeled for a 25 or 30% decline somewhere along the road. It's going to happen. And I would suggest a generation or two have lost that understanding. There clearly has been um, a sense of complacency now with a very low volatility, both in equities and fixed income. And it's not just in the U.S., it's around the world. Um, and when we take a look at surveys of individual investors, they nevertheless believe that fixed income is much safer than equities. And I would argue it depends upon the valuation. Um, what is priced into bonds to me is unrealistic, um, and, and therefore I would be uh, more concerned there. But but you're absolutely right. We have a generation of investors who have been burned by the equity market, not by the fixed income market. Bonds have been in a 30-year bull market. I believe that that has either ended or will soon end. What do you believe will happen with digital currencies? Do you foresee a time when all money will become digital? No. Why? Um, this is not my area of expertise. You know, I do have a lot of uh, mathematical and computer training, um, and I'm very impressed by things like blockchain and, and some of the things that underlie cryptocurrency. But as I study currencies, um, usually the ones that succeed are backed by the full faith and credit uh, uh, of a nation, of an economy. Um, and uh, to uh, quote somebody else, uh, these are backed by the full faith and credit of air. I would say maybe the full faith and credit of electrons. Um, and, and so um, is there a role for electronic exchanges? Absolutely. Um, uh, but whether it takes the form of a currency per se, it's not quite clear. The greatest enthusiasm for using uh, cryptocurrencies has been in, number one, areas that don't want to be tracked um, because of perhaps, uh, you know, dealings that they w do not want in uh, uh, to be uh, a transparent. Uh, the second possible use has been in nations uh, that are really undergoing, you know, economic turmoil, uh, and therefore uh, the cryptocurrency is not tied to mm -hmm. their troubled nation. Uh, but for uh, <clears throat> cryptocurrencies to become major elements – 
um, for developed economies with uh, central banks and so on. Um, right. I don't I don't see it in in the near or intermediate term. Ask me again in a couple of years uh, as as this develops, as we see what the regulatory process is for them, and also as the exchanges uh, for the cryptocurrencies become more mature. Right. Uh, right now, they are not mature. Now, Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much for your commitment to the show, your appearances today with Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Surveillance. Abby Joseph Cohen, folks at Goldman Sachs. And I really want to say thank you as well to State Street Global Advisors for their commitment to what we're doing here today with International Women's Day um, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.